This is Designing the Revolution. I've decided to put in three um, videos that I recently did into this podcast series. There is going to be uh, one on lawyers, one on the media and one on economists. And I just want to mention why I'm doing this before you hear the recording. It's partially because we've made quite a lot of progress, I think, in terms of the groundswell of preparing for this revolutionary process, uh, designing actions, designing organisation, uh, mobilisation and what have you. So what I thought was we might just return to what are we trying to do here? Why is it that the liberal class, the conventional elites, the people who are in charge, are simply not going to adapt to the climate crisis, the ecological crisis and all the rest of it in time. So it's a bit of a reversion to the original argument, just to refresh ourselves before we get on to the heart of this podcast series, which is the revolution itself and how to design the actual, the actual battle, as you might say. So I hope you enjoy these and, you know, they're... They're not pretending to be the last word on the matter, but you'll probably find if you listen to all three um, chapters, there's a reminder of how fact basically the situation is at the present time. And these guys are not going to sort it out. We're going to have to sort it out. And so you'll be primed, as you might say, for the main act that follows on. Thanks very much. Hi, my name's Roger Hallam. I'm doing a video called Hobbit Lawyers Facing Mordor. Obviously, this title comes from Lord of the Rings. And what I'm going to be exploring in this video is themes around the idea that the legal profession in Great Britain and around the Western world is out of its depth when it comes to the prospect of Mordor. Mordor in this context, meaning the climate and ecological catastrophe. So the, the reason why I thought I'd call it this was because I saw a film about Tolkien. And I don't know if you know, but he fought in World War I in the trenches. And apparently um, Lord of the Rings is is based upon the juxtaposition, as you might say, of the sleepy, complacent, comfortable English culture, and then the experience and the hell of being in the trenches in World War, in World War One. And in The Hobbit, where the hobbits live is called the Shire, and there's a phrase from Orwell as well, I think, about the dreamy shires of England. So there's this ongoing thing in British culture about the, the comfortableness of English middle-class life and then there's these horrors happening and coming towards us. And in the 20th century, of course, one of the horrors was World War I. The other horror was Hitler and the Nazi regime. And now we have the third horror, as you might say, which is 
the catastrophe uh, that comes from putting carbon into the atmosphere. Okay, so that's a little summary <laughs> of what I'm going to talk about. I am going to use this video, I think, as part of uh, one of my podcasts. So, as you may know, I have been in prison for four months and I've got the sweatshirt to prove it. <laughs> and so I only got out about a week ago. I was in prison for four months for making a speech, believe it or not, which is another story. But while I was in prison, I started uh, doing some podcasts called Designing the Revolution. So I'm hoping to, to make this one of the podcasts as well. But I'm doing it now because various people I want to communicate to, I think hopefully this is going to some socialist lawyers or something like that in the UK. So they might be watching it. So if you are, hello. Um, but what I would like to say is what I'm, what I'm going to talk about really is beyond politics. And I'll explain that phrase a little bit. And what I mean by that is that the logics and arguments I'm going to use are as just as important to liberal lawyers or even uh, conservative lawyers for reasons I'll explain. So... The Designing the Revolution podcasts are arguing that the severity of the climate crisis is at such a point now, what's locked in is that revolutionary episodes and social breakdown or some combination of the two are now inevitable, at least in Western societies, and we need to prepare for that inevitability. And... What I'm going to be arguing in this video is that another reason why revolutions are inevitable in Western societies, and incidentally I'm not going to be making any claims that revolutions are good or bad, that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm making a sociological observation. So the, re the second reason why revolutions are inevitable is because the liberal classes, the administrative classes of our complex societies are locked into a whole bunch of orientations and logics which mean it cannot respond effectively to what's coming down the line. And more radically, that the more that they try to respond within their paradigm, the worse they'll make the situation. Okay, so I'm going to be fairly analytical about it and use a few big words, dare I say it. <laughs> so hopefully you'll be able to follow. Before I get into the main heart of what I'm going to do, I'm going to look at this. Uh, I've been in a five-week trial. While I was in prison, I was in a five-week trial. So I'm going to use a few of the examples from that trial to show you what I'm talking about. But before I get on to that, I just want to look at a little bit of a background intellectually and touch base with a few, a few arguments and orientations which can throw light on our present conundrum. So the first thing I want to start with is Weber. So Weber is the German sociologist and he had this sort of catchphrase, which was the iron cage of bureaucracy. And 
the general idea, as I understand it, is as modern societies develop, they get more compli uh, complicated, complex, uh, specialised. And we all sort of know what this means. People get into jobs and there's a way of operating according to certain rules. And this stops you think from thinking about the whole picture. It makes you robotic. It removes sort of life force, uh, sense of overall morality and other and other and other things like that and hence this iron cage this sort of set way of thinking about things and while i was in prison i read a book also about habermas who's a sort of continues this this theme uh he's a german philosopher in the post-war period so he's got this juxtaposition between the life world which is spontaneous and has this moral overview and then instrumental rationality which is you know, when you go into your job and you're doing a set thing in a set way and there's rules and regulations. So it's a similar idea. Then just to change tact a bit, I just want to touch base, which you might think is a bit peculiar with the Christian critique of modernity. So more particularly Catholic theologians in the mid 20th century. And there's lots of things that were saying, but there's two arguments uh, in this critique. One, one argument is that if we lose God, um, there's no reason why we should be moral because everything's relativistic. So you've got Nietzsche with the death of God. So this is an ongoing theme in Western culture. And the proposition is if we don't have God, if we don't have an objective morality provided by God, then it's all anything, anything goes and you get a degeneration of society. Um, and also there's this idea that without some religious transcendental prospect, then people have only themselves to think about and there's nothing in life more important than just power. There's no moral transcendence of the self, as you might say. And so both of these ideas from this religious critique of modernity point to the idea that society loses its marbles in a moral way. And this religious critique drew up, obviously, upon the experience of World War I and then the experience of World War II. Now, I'm not saying, like, this is right or wrong. I'm going to be making some arguments about whether you should become a Catholic or not. <laughs> All I'm saying is... is Hmm, that's interesting, right? Okay, so the third thing is this guy called Carl Smith. It's interesting thing about Carl Smith is he was a legal scholar in the 1920s and 1930s. He ended up supporting the Nazis and various things. But what's interesting about this guy is he gave a critique of what you might call the liberal legal paradigm in the sense that he was saying that off sometimes and arguably often there's exceptions to the law and one line of argument is the law can only be maintained by having a political um, a political entity over and above the law which in times of exception can overrule the law in order to maintain law and order uh, civilization democracy depending upon whether you have a right-wing or a left-wing orientation to this point of view. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. The last thing I want to say in this section is that um, there's been a lot of civil resistance activities in the Western world, just up oil in the UK, but also last generation in Germany. And my understanding is, is some of the judges in Berlin have refused to take on cases prosecuting uh, people involved in peaceful civil resistance in Germany. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they've done that, but my, my understanding is it goes something along the lines of this is not for the courts to, it's not for the courts to judge and they've refused to take the cases. And I think subliminally, I think they're remembering the experience of Germany in World War II in the Nazi period. And this connects with the trap of um, what I would call the Eichmann orientation. So while I was in prison, I read uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt, which I've been meaning to read for quite a long time. And if you don't know the story, uh, Eichmann was responsible for the transportation of Jews during the Holocaust, uh, broadly speaking. And he was caught by the Israelis and taken to court. And Hannah Arendt rather controversially said that his orientation, his psychology reflected a banality of evil. Now, I don't want to get into big, uh, you know, arguments about the comparison between the Holocaust and what's happening today in any big, grand way. But what I do want to do is just investigate more generically what, what the Weber's cage looks like. Because arguably what Eichmann was saying when he was in court was, three things. First of all, he wanted to do a good job. Secondly, he was there to obey orders from his superiors. And thirdly, he believed in obeying the law. So you can see where those orientations led. Um, but I don't want to talk about the Holocaust per se. What I want to talk about is the problem as Cole Smith was saying that following the rules, following the law is intrinsically problematic when you're faced with objectively um, extreme circumstances, uh, such as the takeover of um, a crumbling economy by a dictator, such as when um, the prospect of billions of refugees is coming along the line, i.e. the present moment. All right, so those are just, I'm, I'm, I communicated those orientations, those little intellectual pictures to you because I just want to create some fluidity, like broaden, broaden what we're trying to talk about here. Um, so what I'm going to do now is give you a few little pictures of this five-week trial to um, to give you an idea of what I'm going to talk about. So just before I do that, <laughs> just before I do that, I want to say something else, which is the proposition of this video, the proposition of my argument is, is that 
it's not being a good lawyer actually makes this problem worse being a good bureaucrat makes the problem worse being a good politician makes the problem worse being a good civil servant makes the problem worse because you're falling into this Eichmann trap I'll give you two sort of examples um, so a lot of people are aware that running the economy well is going to make the climate crisis worse. So we have this schizophrenia in our culture where you go and you see it in television every night, you know, the Labour Party says, we're going to have green growth, you know, we're going to run the economy in a competent way, we're going to provide jobs, we're going to provide all these good things. And all these good things are going to lead to more carbon emissions. And these carbon emissions are going to lead to the collapse of society. So on the one hand, people are saying, if we follow these rules, if we follow the culture of material progress, things are going to pe people are going to have a nice time. It's competency. But the competency is the thing that's going to destroy society because we're going to go over the tipping points on the climate. So there's a sort of surreal problem here. So hopefully you can see the connection between that and, and the situation with the legal profession. Relatedly, and unfortunately I can't remember the name of this guy, I think he's called Minsky, but he was like an economist. Uh, I think he was a Marxist economist. Anyway, he was in the States and he said, he wrote these books I think in the 1980s and 1990s and he be became famous in 2008. Everyone ignored him, of course, before 2008. But he said something which is massively disruptive of the ways we're taught to think, which he said, the more successful a banking system is, the greater will be the crash um, of the collapse of the banking system, which is obviously counterintuitive. But what he was saying was, is, if bankers are really competent, then they're going to gain trust. And lots of people are therefore going to lend them money because they're good bankers. And they're like in the 1960s and 1970s, banking was boring. People would give their money and there was no runs on the bank and what have you. But what happens over time is that there's a degeneration because they're getting all this money in and so they take, start taking bigger risks because they're being trusted, more because they're being trusted. And so they take bigger and bigger risks. And because they're so trusted, when the crash comes, it's enormous because of that trust that was given to them. And that, that reminds me of something that was said on a... Um, London School of Economics uh, lecture a few years ago. So there was a guy there who studied crashes, uh, economic crashes, and he said there's a cycle. And the cycle is that there's a massive crash. Everyone's terrified and everyone goes, we're not going to be stupid anymore and, and you know, make all these ridiculous investments. And then over the years, that consciousness, obviously, you know, entropies, it disappears. 
and people become more confident again gradually and then they become more reckless and then there's another massive crash and he said this is like a 30-year cycle. Now whether that's strictly right or wrong the point I'm trying to um, elucidate here is that this is another pattern where doing the good thing as you might say leads to these terrible consequences. All right so let's have a look at something concrete. Um, if you're, if you're up in how the British legal system works on the climate, you'll probably know this, that everything really rotates around a right of necessity. So if you are going to be a non-iron cage bureaucrat, right, it's pretty obvious what a court case should look like. It's like, we're doing this, we know, we've sat in a motorway, we've thrown paint over you know, an institution, um, it's a bad thing. But we were right because we have a right of necessity, because we're stopping bad things from happening. And you would present your evidence and the jury would go, yes, that's justified because you're highlighting and or stopping uh, the climate crisis, which is a terrible thing, and the harm that you're stopping from the climate crisis is self-evidently less than the harm of sitting on a motorway. Um, so that's like a common sense point of view. But that's not how the British legal system works. So when you get into a court, what happens is there's a pre-court pre sort of discussion on what charges are valid or invalid. And there's been dozens of these court cases now. And it goes a bit like this. It goes, well, right of necessity is about immediacy. That's about, you know, I hit a guy in the pub because he's about to stab my wife. Hitting someone in the pub is bad, but he's about to, like, stab my wife or whatever. And, and it's, so it's, it's immediate in time and space. So I talked to a prominent London lawyer about this, and we both had the same revelation as it were which is that right of necessity was constructed in a pre-modern age you know in the 18th century 17th century when 90% of crimes were in in a narrow band of time and space because of technology even if you wanted to kill someone in five years time you couldn't do it because the technology wasn't available uh, so 99% of the time, this problem didn't exist. So now you've got this situation where the judge doing a good job, because he's looking at the law, is going to go, sorry, right of necessity is about immediacy in time and space. But the immediacy in time and space, of course, is not the real issue. The real issue is causality. So the assumption is, is if something's close in time and space, then the causality must be straightforward, which let's accept that for the sake of argument. But in modern society where you have extensive causality over time and space, for instance, like, um, you know, a nuclear explosion, for instance, you know, and radiation that's going to harm and kill people for 50 years, 
asbestos is going to kill people in 50 years. The climate crisis is going to kill people for the next 100,000 years. The, these are all modern developments. And of course, the problem is, is that just because something's extensive in time and space does not mean, does not mean necessarily, absolutely, that there's not clear causality over that time and space. Well, of course, the law, the law arguably, doesn't take this into account. So what the, what the judge is doing is trying to do a good job and go, sorry, you can't do right and necessity. And then something that came out in this five-week trial, which is sort of related, is, is that this causality is broad. And you can see where the lawyers, prosecution lawyers are coming from, and I've got some sympathy for it, which is you can't be going willy-nilly, you know, I did this to stop this vague thing happening over there. Um, but the, the concept of broad doesn't necessarily exclude clear causality. So there's a sleight of hand that the prosecution lawyers do, which is say, look, this is too broad, you know, drum, bum, bum, bum. And, and then the, law, the, the judge will say, yes, that's too broad. You know, you need to talk about, um, well, you can't talk about anything because climate crisis by definition is broad. Um, so there's lots more to be said about this. And, you know, this is the, the heart of, of the problem. In, in, in terms of how the law is constructed. But for the purpose of this video, what I'm trying to say is that doing a good job is actually means you're being really stupid. Because <laughs> 99% of the British public, after explaining what the climate crisis is for five or 10 minutes, is going to understand that there's a total right of necessity because of the enormity of what the climate crisis is and the enormity of the harm of it and the spread of it and the extent of it through time and space. But we can see where the judge is coming from. The judge is trying to do a, a good thing. Um, but the judge, dare I say, is being Eichmann-esque. Eichmann-esque. Okay, so let's look at something else which is sort of related which is the categorization of the climate crisis in the courtroom so most of the time the law is about things which aren't political you know someone hits someone someone murders someone let's say and you can politicise it, but what the law is saying is whether you politicise it or not, basically it's illegal to hit someone, other things being equal, it's illegal to kill someone. So you have this like moral consensus in society, broadly speaking, that these are crimes. If you commit this crime, you go to court, there's evidence, you look at the evidence, and, and then you, the jury makes a decision. All well and good. That's what the law is. That's what bureaucracy is about its rules break the rules you get punished then there's this other category which is called political now what i said to the judge i don't know whether he agreed with me or not but i said the definition of political for the sake of argument is where it's not clear what's right or wrong so it might 
it's not really for the for the um, it's not really for the courts to deal with. So, for instance, like if I hit someone because they disagreed about socialism, you'd go to court and I'd go, well, it was right to hit this person because I wanted to make him a socialist. The the judge would go, well, that might be well well and good, but that's a political issue. So if you want to if you want to convert the country to socialism, there's free speech, there's campaigns, there's you know, get your Labour MPs into Parliament. That's not for the uh, that's not for a that's not for the court to sort out. What the court's sorting out is you hit this guy, you had no good reason for doing it, and so I'm going to recommend to the jury that they found you guilty. And I don't want to hear about your socialism nonsense. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, that's got a good logic to it. The problem is, is in some circumstances, like what Carl Smith was saying, is there's the exception to both those categories. And the exception is when an act of evil is happening, which is not in the law zone, not in the political zone, but is what you might call somewhat clumsily in the evil zone, right? When something is happening in society which transgresses all human values, right? You know, the mass murder of children, the mass murder of an ethnic group, the complete destruction of the economy, um, th these sort of things where anyone in their right mind would be opposed to it. But because it's so enormous, there's no law for it, or there's no clear law because it's outside the law. Um, now, this, if you're a bureaucrat, or if you're a judge, or if you're Eichmann, what you're going to say is, is that's nothing to do with me. Um, so for instance, like, when I said, uh, you know, I want to talk about the climate crisis in this court case, the judge said in his written paper, he said, the climate change, climate change is, quote, essentially political. Essentially political. So one of the problems with going to court is you're in this double bind that you're not allowed to talk about the climate. And so you can't explain that it's actually completely beyond politics. And so because you can't explain that, they assume it's another environmental issue. And so it's political. And so they're within their rights to say, we don't want to hear about the climate crisis. You can go and get elected and go through the democratic process. Except it's not political. It's evil. It's a different category altogether. It's a category where even if Parliament said, if Parliament said, actually, we want to continue putting carbon into the atmosphere. It's still wrong because that's an evil thing to do. Just as when the German population through constitutional means voted Hitler into power, that didn't make killing Jews legitimate. You see what I mean? There's like something fundamental here which connects with this Catholic critique of modernity which are our absolute values. And you can argue whether those are 
you know, supported by God or not. That's not really the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that, is that there's an absolute morality in some circumstances. So just as a little aside example, so what these Catholic theologians did in World War II, they had this concept of spiritual resistance. So these French theologians engaged in the resistance against Hitler and, you know, they were shot and killed and all the rest of it. And their orientation was they were above politics or counter-politics, right? Because what, what Hitler was doing, what the Nazis was doing in the transportation of the Jews and all the rest of it, was a different category. It was a transgression of the actuality of a religious society. It was an anti-Christian act. It was a foundational situation. So it wasn't anything to do with politics at all. But the British legal system, in, in, in fact any bureaucracy, can't handle Carl Smith's exception this exception which goes beyond the logics of, of the law. So how does, this, how does this work out? So in this five-week trial I was in, a whole bunch of things happened. Um, yeah, a whole bunch of things happened which again illustrate this notion that if a judge is doing a good job then he's doing a really bad job. So the first thing is the relationship between the judge and the jury. Now if you're a lawyer and listening to this you're probably familiar with all this stuff so apologies if I don't explain it that well. But my understanding is, is this, it goes as follows which is on a constitutional level you have the executive and the executive basically runs the country and they have the law. But there's a countermeasure to that, which is the jury. So, as you know, the jury is selected by sortition, it's selected randomly, and constitutionally, that has the final say on whether a defendant is, is guilty or not guilty. So the idea is it's a counterbalance against executive power, the power of the government. And it's robust in so much as the government cannot overrule uh, that jury. I think they tried to do it in the English Civil War and, you know, they don't, you're not supposed to do it, let's put it like that. Um, so that sounds all well and good, doesn't it? But what happens with the increasing specialisation and bureaucratisation of the legal process and this process of judges looking at the law and doing a good job according to bureaucratic logic is what the judge does is says, well, you know, that's all very well. The, the, the jury has to, has to agree, um, has to have the final judgment. But my role is to decide what the jury is going to be told according to my conscientious investigation of the existing law of the existing law. So I'm there to like lead the jury on what, the, what is legal and what is not legal. So hopefully you can see the problem here. <laughs> so the problem is if something's outside the law in inverted commas, something's like transcendentally moral but isn't included in the law, 
then the judge doing a good job has to go, um, you can't use that defence in front of the jury. So this leads to the jury only getting a very small or even tiny element of what the story is. Um, so that's a major problem. The second problem, of course, is given you've got this slight get-out clause that the jury can't actually get access to all the information, all the executive has to do is change the law. So once you change the law, then the judge, being a good bureaucrat, is just going to say, sorry, you can't use that defence anymore because you've done too much civil resistance. The new law is XXX, which means you can't say anything about the climate to the jury. So the executive has undermined the constitution by creating laws which the judges unwittingly um, enforce. So this is news, you know, this was news to me because I think how the public looks upon the judge is the judge, you know, he keeps order in court and he might give some general advice to the jury. But it's news to me that the, and I'm sure it's news to the British public, that what the, ju the judge can do is say you can't actually talk about that, even if you're self-representing. Um, so I'm going to give some examples of how this worked out in court. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things, but again, if you're, if, if you're not a lawyer and listening to this, this will shock you. But this is how the British legal system works, is there's all these little technicalities which stop you doing com common sense things. And these technicalities have good reasons for them, but only within this logic. So, for instance, in no particular order, I'm trying to talk to the jury about the climate. Well, it's common sense that I should invite someone in to who's knows about the melting of the Arctic better than me. Why not? Because it's evidence, isn't it? If you're in a, a trial about, you know, some illegal use of asbestos, then you'd get an expert in to talk about asbestos killing people in 50 years time. Why would you, you know, why would you listen to Roger Hallam? I mean, I'm just, I'm just some guy, right? Get the expert in. So it turns out that you can't have expert witnesses. The judge wouldn't allow them. Now, with all these things, the judge went through a bunch of technicalities. And to be honest with you, I can't remember them. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you the reason why the judge said it. But this is normal practice. You can't have an expert witness in to talk about whether the harm was real or not. I wanted to present to the jury, you know, a whole bunch of, of peer-reviewed papers. So again, from a common sense point of view, it would be good to give the jury a bunch of references so they know that I'm not making it all up. Um, you know, with quotes from world experts, peer-reviewed papers, some confirmation of physical evidence and such like. So it turns out that the judge won't allow that. He won't allow me to, um, to provide some confirmation of the evidence they want to give. In this court case, it basically rotated around, uh, the charge was that throwing paint on various civil society organisations to get them to do something a bit more dramatic on the climate. That was the activity and the charge was conspiracy to cause criminal damage. 
And yes, by the way, I was found not guilty. <laughs> I forgot to say that. <laughs> anyway, so so we had letters from you know we had letters from NGOs going, we think that this court case is a waste of time and it's a waste of public money and it's civil disobedience and it shouldn't be going through the courts. Well, you'd think that was from a common sense point of view a good thing to present to the jury, wouldn't it? No, that can't be presented to the jury. Character witnesses. So I had some character witnesses from the great of good, you know, Adam McKay and Chris Packham and people that know me. And I said, here's my character witnesses, you know. No, I can't present character witnesses to the jury. Um, past offences. So the prosecution was allowed to say, you know, Roger Hallam's bad character. I've got eight offences. I've been convicted something like eight times for doing civil disobedience. Um, so I said to the judge, well, as it happens, the only time it's actually gone to a jury, I've been found unanimously not guilty. So it makes sense that the jury knows that on a case, which is, happens to be very similar to this case, um, the jury found me not guilty. Um, no, not possible. So you can see how um, you can see how the judge doing a good job means not only does the jury not not have not only am I not allowed to use a common sense defence right of necessity, but on the defence that I did have, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, consent. I can't present a whole wide range of evidence. I can't talk about expert witnesses. I can't bring in expert witnesses. I can't do character witnesses. Right? So what the, the next problem in the courtroom is distraction. So how, how the law works is it loves to deal with minor things which are clear according to the existing law. So you have this box, which is the existing law. So what you, what you ended up in this court case doing, and this is, happens over and over again in climate cases, you start talking about some mundanity. So the mundanity in this court case was people would go to these institutions, they'd throw paint on them and someone's taking a photo. Now, is the person taking the photo a conspirator or not? Were they in on the agreement to do the act? So this, went, this court case went on for five weeks and for week after week the jury that was subjected to this mind-blowingly boring discussion and evidence around who had which bucket, where the paint come, came from and such like. So it's like some second-rate whodunit. And what was interesting of course was People would be getting up and going, what we're facing is the greatest crisis, the greatest act of injustice in the history of the human race. You know, billions of people starving, being forced to leave their homes in the next 20, 30 years. And the judge would go, you know, he wouldn't say anything. And then for the next five hours, we'd be talking about whether Joe actually touched the paint to throw... 500 pounds worth of damage of paint over a NGO. So again, this has the ambience of 
an Eichmann-esque situation. Because Eichmann is there in his office and he's talking about train times, right? <laughs> See what I'm saying? That train, that train is late. We, we need to see this, these people to get this train to there, the minutiae of the Holocaust. And what we're seeing in courts is this grotesque obsession with the minutiae of the law when, excuse me, the world's fucked. Hello? <laughs> and what, what I'm trying to say here is this is not, what I'm trying to communicate in this video is this is not people being bad in a sense. It's not people, it's not a one-off. It's a structural phenomenon when a reformist paradigm enters a period of revolutionary or exceptional um, confrontation within society. It can't handle it. And what happens is the law becomes stupid. So the paradox is, is by following that law, you undermine the law. You undermine the respect for the law in, in the view of the general public, as they gradually find out, you know, that some guy wanted to talk about the climate and he was put in prison for eight weeks, as has just happened. So let's have a look at this consent situation. So this consent thing is even more morally, like, excruciating. So here's the deal, right? <laughs> this is, like, so embarrassing. So the legal profession, you know, the lawyers following the law have decided that you can't have right and necessity. So for those of you who aren't lawyers, right, just remember, right and necessity is, look, this bad, I did this bad thing. I'm not saying it's bad, but I was stopping something bigger. It's pretty straightforward. Maybe it's justified, maybe it isn't. But obviously you present the, the evidence and the jury makes a decision, right? Easy peasy. So that's, that's ruled out for the reasons I've just discussed. So what's left is um, consent. So consent is this subjectification of the objective, as I would call it. What I mean by that is there's a phrase, and this phrase is, I always forget it, but it's, it's something like this, that... Um, does the jury believe that if the owners of the property had known the circumstances at the time of the act, they would have consented to you engaging in the act, in which case you're found not guilty. So the classic example here is there's a dog. The dog's in enormous pain. The man sees the dog. He kills the dog to put it out of pain. It's mercy killing. Once the owner of the dog understands the circumstances, knows of the circumstances, or if the owner knew of the circumstances, then the owner would have gone, fair enough, thank you, you know, it was a compassionate act, you killed the dog, it was in terrible pain, right? So you can see the logic, which is, you know, it's all well and good. So what happens is the climate crisis is put into this box of consent. So you have to... You have to like construct your whole court case around this phrase, believe if they had known the circumstances, they would have given consent. Now what's like profoundly like evil about this, and I'm gonna use that word, is, is it, it assumes 
that the climate crisis is a matter of opinion, right? It's a matter of opinion. And the focus is on you believing that matter of opinion. So I believe that the owners would have consented. So there's no objectivity in that phrase. And the judge, of course, you know, being a bit autistic about it, was going, I've read this sentence and it's purely subjective. And he's sort of right. So he said, okay, you can talk about this, but it's all in the, it's like some, it's like you're talking about your religious beliefs. You know, I believe that the ice is going to melt in the Arctic in 10 years time. Well, that's, oh, well, if you believe that, then he must have been justified to do that. It explains why he did it and the, um, and the owner of the property would have given consent. Um, so what's interesting about this, just coming back to the Nazi period, is um, in this post-war period, for all the obvious reasons, the idea that the Holocaust is a subjective event, i.e. a matter of opinion, has been the biggest taboo of Western moral culture. In Germany, it's illegal to suggest that the Holocaust is a matter of opinion, right? A belief, for all the obvious and right reasons, right? After the event. But when we're talking about the climate crisis in court, we're forced to pretend it's a matter of opinion. I mean, the prosecution was making hay out of this, just going, well, you know, these are people pursuing their cause. These are people uh, with their conscience. These are people with a particular belief. You know, here's society, here's the law. These people are, are peculiar and they're, they're, they're to be applauded, applauded, but it's a matter of belief. And here's the solid world of economics and the solid world of the law and they have to be found guilty and they have to be punished, even though they're nice people. So that's the standard routine. Why the actual actuality is the climate crisis is the most objective of all objectivities and the belief is, is the law, right? That's like the irrelevancy is, is the law as it's presently constructed. So again, what this does, a bit like the distraction thing, is once the general public understands what's going on, then it undermines the rule of law, paradoxically, because people are going, that's just obscene. It's obscene. You know, just let the guys talk about the objective process. So I'll, I'll, I think that's the last one. Yeah. So my last little example is... I mean, I could give a whole bunch of them, I could talk all day about it, but, you know, to give you a final flavour of what's going on in courtrooms is, so you notice that phrase is, um, if I believed, if the owners of the property had known the circumstances, then they would have consented, okay? So there's two other words which are important there, which is known and circumstances. So let's just look at the word known. 
So hopefully this won't surprise you, but the judge and the prosecution were of the opinion that the word known is actualized by the giving of information out of time and space. In other words, there's facts. You, you give facts to people and they process them like a computer and then they decide what they believe, which is 18th century psychology, right? So the big problem with this, of course, is in the real world, that's not how people know things and it's not the process through which you would get someone to know something. Like if something's not, if something's minor, like I'm gonna to go to a tube station after, after this video, I don't, I just need to get the information because it's not emotionally uh, loaded. But everyone knows, as shown by you know, modern psychological research, if something's emotionally loaded and people are in a denial about it, they actually have to see it, a bit like seeing the body uh, when someone dies, right? You have to see the body in order for your head to actually understand what's happening. So what I argued was that um, what no meant in those circumstances, in this circumstances, would be you'd have to go and talk to the, you know, peasant in, 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 in India. You'd have to go and speak to the tribes people in the Sahel to viscerally understand the criminality of what, what is going on. But what, what's interesting here is, is that the judge could not understand that, right? Because what the judge was, couldn't get his head around was in, that knowing was information. In other words, that's how the legal system works. It's bureaucracy. It's pieces of paper. It's instructions. It's black and white. There's no emotion. There's no humanity. It's like known something is just know that two plus two equals four. So again, like, this is just mad. <laughs> but this is what's happening. And then just to finish off, there's this, there's this word circumstances. So initially, um, the judge got himself, you know, with all due respect to the judges watching this, but the judge got himself in a total tiz about this because the law is incoherent, it's like belief. And then you've got circumstances. Are the circumstances objective? Well, formally speaking, not. But the, form, the formal interpretation is nonsensical because it makes it totally subjective. I, I could believe anything sincerely and they'd have to give consent. So I got that. So what the judge was saying was that you can't use arguments about the circumstances. You can't use reason and you can't use persuasion. You just have to say what the circumstances are. So God knows how, where he got that from. But you can see, again, this closing in of what a court is supposed to be. A court is supposed to be a place of argument, a place of reasoning, a place of persuasion. But on the climate crisis, you just need to say what your personal life story is. Absurd, obscene, you know. Okay, so to sum up, I'm going to, I'm going to ex give one or two more examples more broadly about what's happening in, in society over the last you know, few decades. So what I'd like to suggest is that in the period after the Second World War, people 
the liberal class, because of the visceral killing and harm that happened during World War II, they were aware of Cole Smith's notion of the exception. They knew that if you were going to maintain a liberal society, a civilization, sometimes you've got an exception. So, for instance, and you may know this example, and I think the film was made of it, was the, in, I think it was 1970, the Washington Post got the Pentagon Papers. And the Pentagon Papers said the government had been systematically lying over Vietnam. That's the broad situation. Now, these papers had been stolen or something along those lines from the government. So it was basically legal to publish them. The letter of the law was you should not, a paper should not be publishing these papers because it's against the law. The law was super clear. There's no question about it. So there's a scene in the film, you know, it's like one of these classic Hollywood scenes where the lawyers are going, you know, no, if you do this to the editor, you're going to go to prison. There's a high likelihood the editor of the Washington Post is going to go to prison. And he should go to prison. That's the point, right? Because he's broken the law. And the editor of the, of the Washington Post, supported by the owner, I think, if I remember it rightly, says, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because to maintain a liberal society, to maintain an open society, I have to break the law. Or I have to risk it being seen to be broken. And I'm going to publish it. And then they published it. And then other newspapers published it because you've created some momentum and the Nixon administration decided, you know, it's an exception. They're not going to pursue the law. Now, yes, so that's then, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me just talk a little bit more about finance. So, in 2002, I think there was the dot-com collapse. So there's a book on it. And here's the logic, right? This is, the, this is what's called herding. So everyone knows there's going to be a crash, okay? Everyone knows this. All the stockbrokers, you know, all the analysts, they know there's going to be a crash. But no one's going to sell. Because if they sell, they're going to lose their job. Why? Because the price of the stock's still going up. So you go in to your boss and say, I want to sell the stock. And they go, okay, sell the stock. Suddenly you're not making as much money as everyone else. And you're going to lose your job because you're not doing your job properly. Your job is to maximise the profit of the stock. Stay with it. And then there's a crash. And you don't lose your job because everybody has had a crash at the same time. So now everyone's lost all their money, but no one's losing their job because... Everyone else has lost. You see what I mean? So this is a total headfuck situation from a moral point of view and a preventing a crash in a system point of view. So you can see where I'm coming from here. Let's say there's a lawyer watching this video and they go, OK, I've listened to Roger Hallam. Yeah, I can see the logic of it. But I'm not going to do what Roger Hallam says because I'm going to lose my job. I know, I know, I've read the science. I've read the science. I'm not stupid. The Arctic's going to melt. It's going to be a billion refugees within 15 years. You know, maybe 20, maybe 10. There's going to be forest fires in Australia, which is going to 
destroy the economy of Australia within 15, 20 years. The American Southwest is going to collapse. Now, bump, 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 bump. We're looking at the greatest like collapse in the history of the human story. But I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to refuse to take climate. I'm not going to challenge the judge. I'm not going to be done for contempt of court because I lose my job. Get it? <laughs> but when the collapse happens, we'll we'll all go down together. The legal profession will go down, right? You know, there's there's no food in the shops. People start murdering each other in Tesco's. The legal, there's no rule of law anymore. People are shooting us and shooting people in court, you know, just social claps, just read the literature. But that's okay because all the lawyers are going to lose their jobs all at the same time. So that's okay. That's what 99% of people watching this video will do. That's the problem. I just want to give a few examples of when lawyers have got their act together, as you might say. So I talked to a friend who's a top lawyer and he was going, you know, lawyers are really conservative and they don't want to, they don't want to rock the boat, i.e. they're not going to want to lose their jobs. But of course, this is totally contextual. There's nothing about lawyers in and of themselves which makes them unwilling to transgress the courtroom. In fact, during the 19th century, lawyers were revolutionaries a lot of the time because they were pushing back against the aristocratic old regime, right? So if you know your history, you'll know this is, you know, for instance, in the English Civil War, uh, sorry, yeah, well, first of all, in the English Civil War, lawyers were getting up every five minutes and getting dragged out of court and getting put in, you know, prison because they were establishing, establishing the basics of a liberal society. In the American Revolution, at the beginning of that revolution, you know, you had the various laws that came in that the British were trying to impose on the Americans, and an American lawyer would get up and he wouldn't be talking about buckets of paint. He'd be saying, these are the rights of man. These are our ancient English liberties. These are our, you know, these are our, our obligations. In other words, he's giving a big picture. And the, judge was, the judges were overwhelmed. They didn't, you know, maybe they went to prison, maybe they didn't. The point is, is the, the, the lawyers got the big picture and they weren't afraid of fulfilling their primary responsibility, right? And their primary responsibility is not to find a defendant guilty or not guilty. The primary responsibility, as they understood it at the time, was to uphold the rights of man, as they used to say in those days, right? The rights of people the fundamental rights of people. And once liberal constitutions were enacted, their primary responsibility was to uphold the constitution, which is an old, early modern idea, right? That the legal profession is there not to do court cases. The legal profession is there to uphold the constitution. 
Um, so just in case you thought this to think this is all, you know, super old stuff, look at the Chicago 7, 1968. People were being killed in Vietnam. In that trial, what happened to the judge, right? Well, first of all, the defendants were doing somersaults in front of the judge. Why was that? Because the legal system had lost moral authority with the younger generation. Why? Because it couldn't hold the government to account. But what did the, the, what did the lawyer do? The lawyer basically disrupted the court as well. So if I understand it rightly, the lawyer went to prison <laughs> as well as the defendants. Because the lawyer identified that the court case was unconstitutional. So that's my challenge to the lawyers listening to this, and I'll say a bit more about it before I finish. But the analytical point is this, which is the more you pursue a reformist logic, the more that you stay in the rule, within the rules, the worse will be the collapse when it comes. Because the activity of the reformist logic delays the emergence of the revolutionary logic. And when I'm doing these podcasts, and the reason I'm going to include this in this, these podcasts is, as I said at the beginning, the main reason why revolutions are now inevitable is because of the extreme objectivity, as it were, of the climate collapse. You know, this meteorite is going to hit the earth. No, no one's doubting that unless they're in denial. But the other reason is, is because the liberal regime cannot save itself without the exception. In other words, by going against the rules, you can only maintain the rules, as Cole Smith was saying. And no one's going to do that. In other words, all those millions of people in the liberal administrative classes, they're not going to do this. At least that's the sociological determinism of it, because we have case study and case study after case study in the historical sociology that shows over and over again that once you're in a herding space, you just don't, you don't budge, dare I say it. However, <laughs> sometimes people do. So my two practical proposals, if we're going to have a miracle and go against sociological determinism, is there's five or six people listening to this and they're lawyers and they're going to do two things. Number one, they're going to refuse to prosecute climate protesters. And maybe they're going to um, get in trouble for it. But it's an act of necessity in the early modern conception of necessity, i.e. you don't have a choice because to act otherwise is against nature, is against God, is against who you actually are in a metaphysical sense, i.e. the Catholic critique of modernity. Secondly, what you're going to do is engage in civil disobedience to the point of going to prison, like the guy did in 1968. Because as a specialist in social change, my good enough prediction is if 100 lawyers in this country go to prison, 
that you will have legislative change on the climate. And in 10 years time, you'll be able to hold your heads up high when everything collapses and the, the rule of law will maintain some credibility at a time when it's absolutely essential that it does maintain credibility to avoid complete social breakdown. In other words, like, the legal profession is going to have its day of reckoning, okay? And when that day of reckoning happens, when the climate Nuremberg happens, the rule of law has got to have credibility with the younger generation. And it's not going to have credibility if lawyers haven't gone to prison in the 2020s. That's what I'm saying. In other words, like, there has to be a metaphysical solidity, right, over and above shallow utilitarianism. You have to understand that there's a right and a wrong. And an example of this is Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church in 1933, 1934. They were quick off the mark. Once Hitler had come to power, they didn't mess around going, well, the guy's okay. You know, they weren't, like now, they weren't messing around going, well, maybe we'll be okay on the climate. They looked at the facts. They knew what Hitler was going to do. What we need to do now is look at the facts. We know what's coming down the line in 10 years' time. Like, lawyers have to exit the system. And this is what happened with the confessing church. What Bonhoeffer and his colleagues said was, Christianity is fundamentally incompatible with the Nazi regime. Because the Nazi regime is separating one group of human beings from another group of human beings and foundational to Christianity, i.e. there's no compromise on it, is we're all equal in the eyes of God. So they had no choice but to exit the appropriated um, Catholic, uh, Protestant church. So you as lawyers, your metaphysical foundational responsibility is to exit a legal system that will be exponentially appropriated to appease evil over the next 10 years. And that exponential process is evidenced by myself being prosecuted for making a speech, by people being imprisoned for talking about the climate in court. For all those good reasons I've just been saying, good reasons. So just returning finally to the, the Hobbit, okay? So I hope you understand if you're a lawyer listening to this and or if you're listening. I'm not, I'm not against the law, right? You should understand what I'm trying to say here. The, what I'm trying to say is you can only save the law by breaking the law. So there's nothing wrong with being a hobbit. If the world was full of hobbits, having hobbit law would be great. But the world is not just the Shire. The world is the Shire and Mordor. And just to continue the analogy, some of those hobbits have to get to Mordor and put the ring, i.e. evil, that comes from power in and melt that ring. And so you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. So just to continue this analogy a little bit for longer, <laughs> further, the question of course is when, where's, where's Gandalf? Where's Gandalf? And historically, what Tolkien was telling, of course, is a perennial story in, in human history, which is, 
people leave the path of righteousness, they get involved in their petty hobbit-like world, their bureaucracy, their Weber's iron cage, and they forget the big picture. And what the Gandalf archetype comes along and says, no, you know, I'm the prophet, I'm the person who stands out, and I'm going to lead you into a new way of looking at the world, which is going to save the Shire, save English society, save global civilization over the next 15 years. And someone in the legal profession has to make that move if you want to save civilization. So maybe you're watching this or maybe you know the guy who's going to do it. You know, whoever's going to do it has to do it because this is the role of leadership in the present context. In other words, if some judge decided to go to prison, all hell would break loose, right? But that's what needs to happen. So I'll finish with Hannah Arendt, of course. So in this book, um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, there's a really good bit that she says. And she says, um, you count you can't be neutral. If there's no option of being neutral anymore. And she has this phrase, um, if you say, if you say, it's not for me to judge, you've already lost. So I'll leave you with that. Thanks.